Welcome to the Retail Media Moguls podcast brought to you by Platform 195. We share trends and strategies across retail media to help you accelerate your brand growth. I'm your host, Stuart Adamson. Welcome to the Retail Media Moguls podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Adamson, founder and CEO of Platform 195. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the Strategic Partnership Acceleration Lead at Flywheel Digital, the legend that is Peter Bond. Peter is considered a leading figure in retail media and has held various senior leadership roles during his 30-year career, working for companies such as Fetch, Power Reviews, Spins, CBS Health, Dunhumby, and IRA, to name just a few. He's also the founder and co-host of the CPG Guys podcast, of which I am in awe. Peter describes himself as a voice of the consumer evangelist, a CPG expert, data geek, podcast influencer, loyalty advocate, politico savant, connector archetype, and an erstwhile gourmand. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Sorry yeah, for- so nice to be here, Stuart. Thank you for having me. I think the one I'm most proud of is the erstwhile gourmand. <laughs> My misspent youth was chopping mise en place at Michelin star restaurants in New York City on the weekend so that I could get Eric Repair to teach me how to debone a fish or Wiley Dufresne to teach me aspects of molecular gastronomy. So that's, which begged the question, like, why didn't I go into the restaurant business? And the answer to that, I usually say is the way you make a small fortune in the restaurant business is you start with a large fortune and you spend most of it. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. I used to work at a butcher's myself, so I uh, learned how to do the same thing, but with meat as my Saturday job. But tell us a bit about your journey then, because obviously started in the restaurant, but how did you end up where you are and what have been the twists and turns along the way? It'd be lovely to hear a bit more about that. Yeah. After getting out of business school in the early 1990s, I spent a number of years on the brand side doing more traditional brick and mortar types activity, space management, category management, trademark. And that's really where I cut my teeth in the CPG space. And by the end of the 90s, I transitioned over to the service provider side. I started working with IRI. I was working on their retail business. So primarily interfacing with retailers in the grocery channel that were based on the East Coast of the United States, uh, many of whom don't exist anymore, strangely enough. But did that for three years and then jumped into the emerging dot-com world. People are very familiar with Priceline.com. A lot of people aren't familiar that in 2000, they launched a grocery division where you can name your own price for groceries. People aren't familiar because it didn't last very long. We ran it for about 10 months before the venture capital ran out. The bubble burst on the dot-com economy, and they decided in order to save the primary travel business, they'd close down the grocery business. But that's really when I got my flavor for startup businesses. I did a couple more ended up joining a company that was acquired by my previous employer, IRI. So I love to tell people that I was forcibly repatriated (laughs) into the family. I I spent another six years at IRI working with very large consumer packaged goods companies. I was three years on the PepsiCo business and then three years on the Campbell Soup business. That's when Dunhumby found me. They, as a division of Tesco, had built a joint venture with the U.S. grocery retailer Kroger, and they were looking for someone to lead their engagement with the Coca-Cola company. And the person I... What year was that? Yeah, now we're talking about 2010. So during my time at Priceline, I had negotiated the agreement with Kroger 
to have them join the Priceline family for groceries. The person I did the negotiation with was a fellow named Dave Chacho, who at the time, Dave was the VP of loyalty marketing at Kroger. Fast forward 10 years or so, I'm now at IRI and Dave comes calling saying, hey, I brought Dunhumby into Kroger. I'm now on the Dunhumby side. We're looking for someone to manage a challenging relationship. We'll just leave it at that. At the time with the big client Coca-Cola, and I seem to remember following you on LinkedIn, seeing you spend some time at PepsiCo. One, I'm wondering, do you have a deep experience in carbonated beverages and non-alcoholic beverages? And so would you be interested in talking to us? And I've done Humby at the time was the hottest company in the CPG space. So I made the jump and off to Cincinnati I went where I spent four years working on large clients like Coke and General Mills. And then CVS came calling. CVS is one of the two largest drug retail chains in the United States. I think they have about 9,000 stores. And they had a longstanding loyalty program called Extra Care, and they were looking for someone to build out what I would call the the early generation of retail media. So anyone in the U.S. who shops at CVS is familiar with the six-foot-long register receipts that contain coupons printed on it. Okay. Uh, people like to create memes of it as replacements for broken vertical blinds. Or one of my favorites was they superimposed the CVS register receipt on Meghan Markle's train at her wedding trying to demonstrate how long it is. In fact, a comedian on late night television in the US, Jimmy Kimmel, made quite a career in his early years on television, making fun of these register receipts. Anyhow, that became my responsibility. And I took it from being printing out personalized coupons on register receipts to doing it through personalized email, doing it through personalized mobile app notifications and other things like that just became kind of the early stage of controlling in-house capabilities around that. And that's really where I got my flavor for retail media. I ended up then going to a company called Spins, which does product attributes. So think about every aspect of a product, what type of bottle it's in. Is it gluten-free? Is it non-GMO? All of those different attributes that manufacturers would use to be able to analyze data, sales data, particularly through the lens of those attributes. And then I got onto the digital shelf. I joined a company called Power Reviews. In the UK, people would recognize Power Reviews as basically the SaaS platform that sits behind companies like John Lewis and Partners. If you go there and you look at a product and you see that there's a four and a half star rating and there are 300 reviews, that's just Power Reviews sitting in the background. They work with a lot of retailers and brands to do that. And it was while I was there that the pandemic hit in 2020. And that's when my dear friend of 25 years, hearkening back to my IRI days, and a fellow by the name of Sri Rajagopalan, Sri and I had met at IRI, and he had left IRI and gone on to the brand side. He'd spent quite a number of years on the PepsiCo business and ended up being the very first VP of e-commerce for their Frito-Lay division. He then left PepsiCo, joined J&J to stand up e-commerce there went to Revlon and he left Revlon as the pandemic hit right at the beginning. And that's when he called me up one day and said, Peter, there's all this massive transformation going on around e-commerce. Drizzly was growing. Drizzly is a large alcohol delivery 
marketplace here in the United States. It was growing radically. Most people will know of Instacart. It was a grocery marketplace here in the U.S. as well. It was growing at 5x rate. And he said, there's not enough chronicling of longitudinally of what's going on. We really should do something here. And we had been talking for years about co-authoring a blog, and we decided a blog wasn't the right format. So we just decided to launch a YouTube channel. And we named our show after the first words that came out of Shree's mouth when we recorded the first episode. He said, welcome to consumer engagement in an omni-channel world. And every week, we would just take turns asking each other questions. And after about five or six episodes, three things became readily apparent. Number one, that YouTube was not a good platform to have a conversation because it is an active engagement platform. It requires that you sit there in front of the screen. If you close the screen, it stops playing. So we decided to move to podcast. Two, I know that consumer engagement and omni-channel world just rolls off your tongue, but we wanted something a little catchier. So we decided we're a couple of guys and we're in the CPG space. We'll call ourselves the CPT guys. And then we decided that while we thought we were subject matter experts on a lot of things after five episodes, we were pretty much out of subject matter expertise. So we would need to start inviting on some guests. So those three things were the catalyst. And then it was really just us trying to be very strategic and deliberate about how we would get into this. And we started by understanding we were going to be a B2B podcast, that LinkedIn was the right social media platform to advance B2B content. So we created a company page and we just started being very deliberate and about building an audience, organic audience. We never paid for followers. You know, the where we've gotten, I won't bore you to too many details to death in what's happened, but three years later, we're almost 300 episodes in. We're just short of 300 episodes. We have almost 23,000 followers on LinkedIn. And if you look at who they are, they are primarily people who work at blue chip retailers and manufacturers and service providers in the industry. So we have three or 400 people from Walmart following us, several hundred people from Coke and Pepsi and Nestle and Amazon and what have you. And that's the kind of audience that we wanted to create. What transpired fairly quickly after we started the first big episode, the one that really drove some awareness of who we were, actually involved retail media. In the early summer of 2020, Instacart was preparing to launch its retail media platform, Instacart Ads. And I knew the person who was running the program there is an old colleague of mine, Josh Ryder, and I'd been begging Josh to come on my podcast. And I couldn't get him to come on. And one day he called me up and he said, I'd love to come on. And I said, what changed your mind? And he said, well, my problem is that every time I'm in the queue for PR to push out the existence of Instacart ads, remember this is the summer of 2020, right? Yeah. Every time I'm in the queue, I get pushed out because Instacart signs a deal with Walmart or Instacart signs a deal with Sephora or Instacart signs a deal with whomever. And he said, I just can't get into the queue. So I want to come on to your podcast. So he came on and we just had him sit there for an hour and painstakingly go through what their platform was, how the bidding system worked, what were all the different kinds of on-site capabilities. Hmm. And it may have been dry, but it was comprehensive enough. And talking to him two weeks later, 
he told us that he could readily identify at least 20 new brands that had come onto the Instacart ads platform directly because of listening to our podcast. So that was an indication to us that one, people were hungry for this kind of knowledge and that we were reaching the right audience and they were engaged. And kind of where we are now is more often than not, we have guests on from the who's who of the retail media space. And are you seeing those guests from across different categories? I mean, we're yeah. quite specialists in travel, but it'd be interesting to know what sort of really, you know, what sort of categories are you getting on, you know, and which categories are more developed in this space and who's sort of doing the right things and who's sort of catching yeah. up? So I would say that far and away, the category or the vertical that we're most engaged with is grocery. So we've had on people from and I'm using grocery very broadly because you could classify Walmart as a mass merchant. I tend to classify Walmart as a grocer that sells mass merchandise as opposed to the other major player here in the US Target. I would classify them as a mass merchant that sells groceries. And there's a fundamental difference in that. It's what your priority is and what you're known for. So grocery has been very big. We've had Walmart on six or seven times. We've had Kroger on three or four times. We've had Albertsons Media Collective, the third largest grocer in the US, six times, I think now. So clearly in that space, and that's because they are the most mm-hmm. developed. If you yeah. look on a revenue basis, or if you even just survey, I think the ANA, one of the trade agencies here in the US did a survey of its members and asked which retail media platforms are of most interest to you. The top 13 mentioned in their survey were retailers that to one degree or another sold groceries. And it shouldn't be surprising, right? Groceries are a frequent purchase and advertisers want to go to where the audiences are. That's right. right. So far and away grocery. That being said, We've had on people from home improvement, both Home Depot and Lowe's. We have had people on, we just recorded an episode this week. We'll be releasing one with Nordstrom. I've got Macy's on the schedule to record as well. We've had uh, discount retailers like Big Lots. We've had lots of different players. So there's no, and drug retailers, Walgreens, advertising group, as I mentioned to you, CVS Media Exchange is coming on. That's going to be a very big one. So anyone that is in the space of retail media looks and and is interested, and we seem to have cultivated an audience of particularly manufacturers that they are trying to reach, and this can be a very viable mechanism. And where are these guys in their journey, do you think? I mean, Mm-hmm. Often we see sort of them start trying to do some sponsored listings on site and on site mm-hmm. ads, and then they marry that with a bit of audience extension. And then certainly where we've helped our clients is do that piece, but actually get up the funnel a bit. So into influencers and into creative ideas and social competitions and things like that. Are they still sort of very much focused at the bottom de- at the bottom of the funnel there, you know, and just converting the low hanging fruit, or are any of them really sort of starting to make inroads with the through the line stuff? Well, I think, let's just say this, they all see the upper funnel aspect of going off-site and creating awareness as being the mechanism that will allow them to tap budgets that until now they haven't been very successful at accessing. If you believe a lot of the work that's been done by consulting companies like Boston Consulting Group, they'll tell you that a lot of the, particularly the on-site investment that's going against retail media is primarily being sourced by existing co-op or trade funds. So they're just shifting dollars from less efficient promotion mechanisms and they're moving it into retail media. And some yeah. of that is because the main the retailers are making asks of them. And so as a result of that, 
that's the trade is where it's coming from. What retailers understand is where brand budgets exist is particularly around concepts of driving new product innovation and other types of activity. And in order to access those funds, you need to compensate for other traditional mechanisms of advertising that are waning in terms of their power. I'm particularly talking about linear television and I'm talking about print media. So both of those are on the decline. If you believe most of the research that I've seen, linear television, people cutting the cord are doing one of two things. They're moving to connected television, which is the platform that retail media can access through building partnerships with companies like Roku and Disney and Paramount and other streaming services to compensate for loss. And the great thing about it is when you do that, obviously, you bring to bear the closed loop environment of being able to measure audience impressions to actual conversion. And that's the real power that brands are looking for to justify shifting budget away from traditional channels. The other thing is, but some of those people just aren't moving to connect it. They're doing other things. And as a result of that, there's this growing audience that is being referred to as the unreachables, people that cannot be reached through linear television. The reality of it is that they may or may not be moving to connected television. The fact is they are still going into physical stores. So that's where we look. I look to the future. I'm always, I'm the Canadian in the group. I love Wayne Gretzky. He always had this saying, don't go where the puck is, go where the puck is going. I look at retail media, I think where the puck is going is this enormous scalable audience, which is the in-store audience. Like if you believe research from companies like Placer AI and Comscore, Walmart's in-store audience is 70% larger than their digital audience. So if you can start harness the in-store environment through surfaces and other mechanisms, that presents a way for retailers to start monetizing that aspect. And that can start along with the offsite to draw dollars out of the traditional brand budgets. I think the big challenge is going to be adjusting brands to think differently about what dictates a trade spend versus a brand spend. And what I mean by that is a lot of manufacturers have always operated under the belief that, and this in the U.S. particularly is driven by some federal regulation that the Robinson-Patman Act about how much you can allocate towards trade funds, is that if the bill, the invoice for any type of media came from a retailer, it had to be sourced from the trade fund. And to that, I would throw out this really big challenge. Amazon Web Services. Is Amazon a retailer? If it is, then manufacturers paying to use AWS to run their technology platforms, well, they're technically a retailer. Does that mean you have to pay for AWS out of that? I mean, there are a lot of challenges that retail media and the changes that are going on are starting to drive revolution and transformation in our Mm. space. So I've got a great chat, a couple of things on that. So that act, is that preventing brand spend going to the retailers via the media agencies or are they finding a way around that? Well, here's what I'll tell you. I'll give you some great examples of where these challenges are. You know, Procter & Gamble probably has the strongest line item. They say if the invoice comes and it's not only just if it comes from that. I most recently I was at Cornell University talking to a group of people in an omni-channel leadership class and one of them brought up the fact that this was a retailer. They were getting pushback that the invoice 
that they were getting from that retailer on retail media that printed on the digital invoice, literally denoted on the digital invoice, was a P.O. box that was the same P.O. box as they use for their trade funds, even though the way they pay is through electronic fund transfer. By mere virtue of the fact that it had a P.O. box that was the same as a P.O. box on invoices for in-store activities that are traditionally paid for retail media, they said, you have to change your digital invoice and have a different P.O. box. Even though I'm not ever mailing you anything in that P.O. box, I just need to make my lawyers happy so that they don't think, because they're really worried. They are very worried about running afoul of that kind of legislation. So it's something that's going to require a lot as the bigger retail media gets and the more they're doing these kinds of things this is something that the industry is going to have to tackle i know they can handle it it's just that right now there's still a lot of friction going on in the industry around who pays for what budget it comes out of and whether or not it's controlled like retail media at the end of the day is media and the question becomes who should control it is it something that because right now for a lot of manufacturers They'll have an Amazon team. The Amazon team is part of the marketing organization. And then every other retail media platform is handled by the local sales team that is handling it. There's got to be a measure of convergence, maybe not from a control or from an organizational structure perspective, but there's got to be some convergence around process that you want to evaluate all of your investments against retail media, regardless of who the retailer is in a unified and consistent manner so that you can make judicious decisions as a brand where you invest against. I think one of the things we did when we were working with Thomas Cook was actually we helped set up a limited, separate limited business, which was effectively a a creative and content agency and used that as an opportunity to not only separate in the suppliers' minds around the fact that this wasn't just trade dollars going to a retailer, but was also actually a full marketing services business. But that is something that has to be done. Generated its own revenue line. Yeah. So there are all sort of ways around, I suppose, but it'd be interesting to see how it evolves over time. I'll give you a great example. When Dunhumby was in that joint venture with Kroger, they had a separate company called Dunhumby USA. So it was 50% owned by Kroger. It was 50% owned by Dunhumby. The minute that Kroger dissolved the joint venture and absorbed most of that previous entity into what is now known as 8451, that's the name that they gave this new entity. It's the longitudinal address of Cincinnati. The first thing they had to do was cancel all of their agreements with alcohol manufacturers. And the reason for that is yet another interesting element of U.S. law. It is something called Tidehouse Laws, which stem back to actually back to the U.K. And the emergence of legislation around what is commonly referred to as the three-tier system that manufacturers of alcohol, distributors of alcohol, and retailers of alcohol have to be three different entities. And that was to try and prevent alcohol manufacturers from creating monopolies at the retail level. And as a result of that, now that the check was going to 8451 and not this joint venture, they would have been in violation of the tight house laws. So they literally had to cancel. So for, I think now going on eight years, Previously, companies like Anheuser-Busch InBev and Molson Coors and Diageo all had access to the robust customer data that Dunhumby afforded them through Kroger, and that data was cut off completely in mm-hmm. 2015. Mm-hmm. And so to this day, are still not able to buy and access that data. Wow, that's amazing. 
That's so, why a lot of retail media, the emergence of these third-party entities like Critio and Citrus Ad, which become content platforms that are integrated into the retailer's retail media platform, manufacturers can go and pay Critio. They can go and pay Citrus Ad, and those ads can flow. onto retail media platforms or Instacart's a marketplace, right? Instacart is not, same with Drizzly. They are marketplaces. They are not the retailers. They are free to take advertising dollars to promote products. Fascinating. It's amazing. There's always ways around, aren't there? You mentioned before about the, I think it was Walmart's audience being 70% larger in store than than on digital. Is that right? Yep. So tell me about the latest sort of developments in tech in store and the digital experiences sure. and, and then also the anything around the attribution and measurement of that because sure, that, that sure. was always the sort of core challenge in that space. It'd be really nice to know what's going on in the States, really. Sure. So there is a lot of push to drive the creation of different products around in-store media. So there are companies like Barrows, which is a division of WPP, companies like Stratacash, and what they're doing is they are investing in placing surfaces, digital screens, in-store, in-aisle, at the end of end caps. And the idea here is let's start to digitize a lot of the in-store experience. Now, there is what you have to understand when you start talking about this channel is that you have to understand fundamentally that the experience is not going to be what you get in on-site and off-site. Those are highly personalized experiences. I can take the search activity what people are entering into search terms, I can use their historical purchasing behavior, and I can serve them up highly personalized content and experiences and offers. That is not the case in a physical store, at least not without the use of a mobile app. So when you talk about you seeing surfaces that are at an end cap, it's more about creating meaningful content experiences than it is about creating personalized content experiences. So fundamentally, things like that. But there are also the ability to print out shelf tags, shelf tags that have additional content on them, advertising content that hangs below the basic barcode and the price per unit and the description of the product. That's another mechanism for in-store media. Radio that's going on in the background, creating radio advertising as people are walking the store. That's a mechanism. A lot of retailers, particularly grocery retailers in the U.S., have fuel stations in their parking lot. There are screens on those fuel stations. That, again, becomes a mechanism. So if you think about there are a lot of opportunities to connect with those consumers as they're coming into the store and do so in meaningful ways, that is the promise of in-store retail media. And that's the great thing is the retailers control it. And if as long as they can start thinking about how they integrate that into their mobile app, because the device that people are carrying around, that can be the personalized element, but it can also be the mechanism that guides the measurement. And you talked about that earlier, right? Understanding that people were in the physical store and being able to precisely locate them in areas of the store those become the propensity signals for they were exposed to the advertising. Now let's see, did they actually make a purchase in store or online? If you can do that, then this closed loop environment becomes really desirable Mm -hmm. to advertisers that are finding that the old freestanding insert is less powerful, that linear television advertising. You know, Walmart's in-store audience is twice as large on a weekly basis than the Super Bowl delivers. And the Super Bowl is once a year. 
right? <laughs> so if you start understanding that scale and saying, wow, in-store is really powerful and I can't reach people through linear television, but I can through in-store activity, they're the ones you look at what Kroger's doing and as Kroger looks to consummate its, its merger and acquisition with the Albertsons companies to make them much more competitive with Walmart, that becomes a real powerful. And that's something that will give them to a degree, a step up on Amazon. Because in the United States, you know, Amazon's still the 800-pound gorilla. They still garner 70 to 80% of all the retail media dollars, right? Nice. Everybody's chasing Walmart. That's not the case in Europe. It's not the case in APAC and elsewhere in South America and Latin America. Walmart's, uh, pardon me, Amazon's still the 800-pound gorilla. But Walmart and Kroger and those that have in-store audiences and have the ability to create solutions that can advertise in-store, suddenly they have something that Amazon can't catch up to, at least not in the foreseeable future. Like Whole Foods is not a viable competitor to Walmart's physical stores or Kroger's physical stores. So I think maybe just because we've got a relatively limited time, why don't we talk a little bit about the digital space? How do you maximize the revenue that you're generating from your suppliers, both Mm -hmm. on the big level and then the sort of scaling of the long tail, so to speak? Mm -hmm. And then the sort of other side of retail media, and often that I find there's a bit of a camp that believes retail media is this joining up of the networks and buying third party media across it. And then the other camp is about all the supplier uh, piece. Tell me what your thoughts are around that and the development sure. and where we're all going with it and what you see. I would be remiss if I didn't tip of the hat to on-site retail media, right? For all this growth in other mechanisms, offsite and what have you, at the end of the day, search is still the predominant component. So of domestically in the US of the $37 billion in revenue that was generated from retail media last year, probably 25 billion of that 37 came from search. So on-site search is still the dominant component. That being said, Offsite, and particularly like connected television, I think this year it's estimated to be about $6 billion and it's growing at a 20 or 30% clip. So there's an enormous amount of opportunity and that kind of gets back to the whole upper funnel. It's something that brands are looking to compensate for other mechanisms waning in their power. Retailers are looking to access the dollars that come with it. And all of a sudden, we have these growing audiences. Streaming services are through the roof. Connected television is happening. And it's hardly a week goes by that I don't see an announcement from a major retailer partnering with a streaming service to use their audiences to target advertising as they see fit. Yeah, we see an interesting piece in there. And obviously, this is how we advise our, our clients. But often we see, because that effectively... For the smaller suppliers that typically connected or TV or or out of home is an expensive entry point, because now we can buy it on an impression basis, actually it opens up a huge amount of, you know, fraction of a campaign for suppliers that don't necessarily have the budgets of the big ones. And actually, if you're doing the data targeting, right, then actually it's a hugely effective way of buying above the line media and integrating them into retail media campaigns. Offsite is also very relevant for retailers that either don't have a large e-commerce audience or don't necessarily have the financial resources to launch their own. I'll give you two examples of this. Dollar General is a value retailer here in the United States. They have over 10,000 stores around the United States. They are primarily a cash operation in physical stores. So there aren't a lot of people doing e-commerce. So thinking about creating an on-site 
retail media experience for Dollar General is probably not top of mind. That being said, they do have that audience of 100 million shoppers or what have you that they can use to target offsite advertising. So what Dollar General is doing is their offering is primarily offsite because they knew that that's where their audience would have value to a brand. Another example is Nordstrom. I recently interviewed a fellow named Aaron Dunford, who is the head of Nordstrom's media network. And he didn't have the financial resources to launch on site. So what he did is he went and partnered with third-party DSPs and what have you, and made his audience available to them and started marketing to all the manufacturers in his community saying, you can use us and our audiences through the DSP to create offsite advertising and do it at scale. And then he generated enough revenue from that endeavor to then fund the creation of an on-site solution. So he started off-site and went on-site. Whereas if you look at most of the big players, they started on-site and then broadened to off-site. Yeah. So I think that the off-site just offers an opportunity for retailers that may not want to start or may not be able to start on-site to do so with a much lighter footprint. I can tell you this, having worked at a large retailer like CVS, they budget out their IT allocation a year and a half in yeah. advance, That's right? And if I walked into any large retailer today that wasn't in retail media and said, I want to launch retail media, they'd have to do a couple of things. First, they'd tell me, talk to me in August, we'll budget for the following year. Or they would say, fine, which projects do you want me to knock off the list? And by the way, whoever's project that is, is not going to be happy because I bet they're not going to be relieved of whatever commitment they made to the organization to get those IT resources. It just doesn't happen like that. So yeah. it, it takes a long time. Partnering with external providers that can do a lot of the activity that doesn't involve IT internally to be as dramatically involved, that is the fastest way to get retail media up and running for and we, a lot of these retailers. We see that completely. And we've got at least two or three clients, big, big retailers who are yeah. doing exactly that. We start with audience extension and building out yeah. their shopper platform. Yeah, sure. And then meanwhile, we're working with the on-site guys to actually stakeholder management, you know, getting them to understand, you know, that it's not going to you know, kill their business or cannibalize their, their thing. But actually, there's a huge revenue opportunity. Also, just getting behind that roadmap and finding ways of getting the platform into the site so that no, uh, all of this is at the end of the day is still predicated on the ability for brands to get the measurement performance marketing measurement that they need. That's why the ability to measure incrementality beyond just ROAS, return on advertising spend, increasingly the the requirement, right? The table stakes are you need to be doing this in a test and control environment where you're mm -hmm. holding out a control group and measuring how much sales were actually a result of the advertising, not just for every dollar I put in, here's how much I got in advertising that doesn't take into account, right? Sales that would have occurred naturally as yeah. a result, regardless of the advertising exposure. Yeah. So that is becoming, and that's why you see the rise of things like clean rooms, right? Clean rooms that allow manufacturers to plug in and through privacy safe environments, measure performance so that they can do that across retailers, get their apples to apples comparison. Because increasingly the decision to invest in retail media is bubbling its way up beyond the VP, beyond the SVP, frankly, in many cases going right to the board level. You know, yeah. two years ago, I was at the Cagney conference. Cagney is the consumer analyst group of New York. It's a 
all the analysts get together in a big boondoggle every year down in Boca Raton, Florida, and they parade through 30 of the largest consumer packaged goods companies. And the CEO and the CFO typically tell them this is what we've got planned for the year. Two years ago, I asked the CEO of Procter & Gamble how he was fundamentally thinking about changing their marketing budget allocation to compensate for retail media. You would have thought he was a deer in the headlights. He had no idea what I was talking about. He quickly pivoted the conversation and went to the next question. He showed up again this year at Cagney and he led his presentation talking extensively about how they were focusing retail media. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it was my question two years ago that kind of made him do that. I think it was much more of that was a catalyst to say, what do we need to know about this retail media? And then as all of a sudden these demands start getting placed on manufacturers, right? They need to understand that they have to be invested in this. It's not just something that the trade team at this retailer or that retailer, the sales team can handle, that it does elevate all the way to the board level. And that's what I see as being a fundamental shift in this industry. And actually, it's required. I mean, I know from our experience, and certainly when we built the business at Thomas Cook, that without C-level buy-in by, you know, right at the top, well, we could, we'd have done it, but it'd been a lot slower. And actually, we got that early. And then that helped sort of push all over all those stakeholders who were sort of dragging their feet or not saying anything. So actually, to have Procter & Gamble, the actual sort of, you know, the brands themselves sort of say, yeah. actually, this is really important. That instantly makes the CEOs of the retailers sit up, doesn't it? And and at that point, the whole thing should accelerate. I expect this kind of conversation from manufacturers like L'Oreal, right? They have leaned into digital more than any other manufacturer I have seen to date, right? They have built so many creative capabilities to advance the understanding that content is going to drive a lot of their engagement. But even two years ago, I was looking at the Cagney presentation by Colgate Palmolive. And typically at these industry investor presentations, the CFO and the CEO speaking. Colgate had their chief digital officer, a woman named Brigitte King, had her and gave her 30 to 35% of the time during their one-hour speech to just talk about their digital direction. That was revolutionary to me. This year, I saw Church and Dwight, the manufacturer of baking soda and and all sorts of other personal care products, their presentation screamed digital engagement, recognizing the power of retail media. There is transformation occurring. It's occurring very rapidly. Mm. So there's movement on the manufacturer side. The retailers are supplying it. There's still friction, right? There's still these bumpy roads, common measurement terms. That's probably the biggest thing that there's got to be alignment between manufacturer and retailers on how things are measured. That's the way you're going to shift budget dollars more quickly. And then they've got to get over that trade issue. If they can get over the whole, if the invoice comes from a retailer, does it mean it has to come out of trade? If they can get over that hump, then all of a sudden retailers will compensate not only for the loss of linear television, but I mentioned print advertising. The local newspaper is all but dead in the United States. That was a mechanism that a lot of people got a lot of awareness of things. Retailers with their in-store experience, they can help compensate for the loss of that particular advertising channel. Absolutely amazing. Listen, I've loved every second of this listening to you. I could listen to you all Thank day. You. But, you know, at some point, I'd love to have you back, Peter, you know, to come and talk to us again. But just sort of at the end there, you know, just while we wrap up, is there any advice you'd give to anybody newly emerging into the retail media space in terms of how you can get set up quickly? Sure. Well, I mean, if you're a practitioner in the space, avail yourself of 
as much learning as possible. Podcasts like yours, podcasts like ours, they're meant to be community discussions that are ongoing. So that be curious, just be curious. If you're a retailer, avail yourself of understanding that partnerships will get you there a lot quicker. The other thing is understand that as the industry sits right now, for the most part, manufacturers perceive retail media as taxes. They're not necessarily seeing the returns that they see on Amazon and what have you. And so you've got to bend over backwards as a retailer to not carry a big stick. Or if you're going to carry a big stick, walk softly, try to work with your manufacturers. And if you're a manufacturer, understand that a retailer is asking you to invest in their platform. It's not a yes or no answer you have the capability to go back to that retailer. Because remember, this is a juxtaposition. You've been selling to them for many years. They're now trying to sell to you. You have the right and honestly, you have the responsibility to say, okay, you want me to invest in this. What I need from you is this. I need you to be able to deliver over here. This is not a transactional relationship where I'm walking into a coin store and I'm buying a 1925 silver dollar, right? That's very transactional. I'm negotiating on price. You have a long-term relationship between retailer and manufacturer. You have to be able to ask for things that may not directly be connected to the retail media. It may have to do with in-store. It may have to do with supply chain, whatever. But don't be afraid to ask for that. That is how you're going to build long-term sustainable relationships that work with these retailers. So think about the bigger plan and try to make it part of the joint business planning effort. Fantastic. So it only remains for me to say thank you very much indeed, Peter, for joining our Retail Media Moguls podcast. It would be great if you could come back sometime so we can see how how you've developed everything. And it's just fascinating because you've got such an amazing broad view of the industry. And also from over the pond, it's really amazing to hear what's going on over there. So thank you so much. Please do come back. My pleasure. We'll be happy to and we'll make sure to promote the existence of your podcast. We look at podcasting as being a community that a rising tide lifts all ships. It's not about the competition. It's about getting more voices. So we welcome you to this community. Yeah. And I welcome you to the UK and come open a bottle of wine with me. The Retail Media Moguls podcast is brought to you by Platform 195. To learn more about Platform 195 and how to connect retail media with intelligent marketing to accelerate growth, visit platform195.com. And then make sure to search for Retail Media Moguls in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at Platform 195, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.